Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick. And we have the privilege of having Dr. Michael Haken on with us again. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Haken. Great to be with you. And this episode, we're going to be talking about a particular Baptist by the name of Samuel Pierce. So to start us off, Dr. Haken, can you give us a biographical sketch of Samuel Pierce? Yes. Um, Pierce was born uh, in 1766, and he died very young in 1799. Um, He died of uh, tuberculosis, which was a big killer in the 18th century, along with smallpox. Um, Baptist by root, by origins, he grew up in a Baptist home. His father and his grandfather were both members of the particular Baptist church in Plymouth. A uh, church that went back uh, to the 17th century. Its earliest pastor, Abraham Cheer, was called to the church probably in the middle of the English Civil War in the 1640s. And uh, he would die in prison uh, for his faith in the 16, 1660s. And so he was a very rich, had a very rich history. Uh, it had gone through some difficult times in the early 18th century, but by the time that uh, Pierce was growing up in the church. It was a um, very solid, stable um, work. Uh, Pierce was, though, influenced by companions in his early teens uh, who led him astray. Uh, naval towns like Plymouth, Plymouth was a major naval town, are um, not easy places for young people to grow up. There's all kinds of temptations, and uh, Pierce fell into a number of them. But in the providence of God, uh, at the age of 16, he was converted through the preaching of a visiting student pastor, a man named Isaiah Burt, who would eventually become the uh, pastor of the church in Plymouth and um, baptized the year following. Um, By the mid-1780s, it was evident to the congregation that Pierce had gifts for ministry and they suggested to him that he attend uh, Bristol Baptist Academy, which was the only uh, school in Britain for training Baptist ministers or uh, Baptist pastors. Um, a small school based in Bristol. Uh, its roots also go back to the 17th century, but um, it had really only begun to function as a school in the 1720s. And um, when Pierce went there, the principal was a man named Caleb Evans, who had been a tutor under his father's principalship, and then he had inherited the principalship um, in the 17, uh, 1770s. And um, it was a fabulous experience for, for Pierce in many ways. He, In addition to, obviously, his theological studies, which also were combined with some what we would describe today as a liberal arts education, um, he, had, <clears throat> he had regular opportunities of preaching, and that's where it began to be evident that God had really gifted him with a remarkable ability uh, to preach the gospel and to preach the scriptures. Um, he was became known as the silver-tongued, um, kind of a similar epithet that you have with John Chrysostom, Chrysostom meaning golden mouth. And um, 
Uh, it was also here he built friendships with men like William Stedman, who would be a major force for revival in the north of England, and also had the, the tremendous privilege of being mentored by Caleb Evans. Evans took a deep interest in all of the students. Uh, there were not many. There would only have been about 20 to 25. And he sought to secure them places of ministry after their graduation. And uh, he played that role in Pierce's life. And Pierce was able to go to Cannon Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. And um, he went there in 1789, uh, formally ordained a year later. And um, he would be the, that would be the only pastoral charge he had. Um, it was a tumultuous era. <clears throat> it's the beginning of the French Revolution um, when um, Pierce uh, begins his ministry there. Uh, Birmingham uh, is was in the midst also of the Industrial Revolution. So many of the people in Pierce's congregation, there were about a couple hundred when he went there. By the end of his ministry, there would have been well upwards of 12, 1,500, about 400 conversions during his ministry, 330 conversions led to member people becoming members of the church is about 10 to 15 a year which doesn't sound like a lot but it's a it was tremendous growth uh, for the church many of those who are converted were um, illiterate and employed in some of the really ugly factories that began to be built in the heart of Birmingham I grew up in Birmingham and uh, remember a lot of the areas of Birmingham being slums uh, that went back to the 19th century and that had their roots back into the days of Pierce when the Industrial Revolution began there. And so Pierce's ministry was very much to, to the poor, the downtrodden. Um, and uh, God gave him a, a fabulous uh, companion in his wife, Sarah. She was the daughter of a Baptist minister, a granddaughter of a Baptist minister by the name of John Ash. Her father had been a Baptist deacon, and they would have five children, um, three of whom would survive uh, infancy, uh, one of whom would marry a son of William Carey and would go to India. And um, their grandson, Samuel Pierce's great-grandson, and William Carey's great-grandson, Samuel Pierce Carey, was the author of the only biography of Pierce, that was published as a book in the 20th century. There's been a few others since then in the 21st century, but um, Pierce was very well known uh, during the uh, 19th century. Uh, Andrew Fuller, his very close friend, wrote his memoirs. Um, he was the sort of man, William Jay, another Baptist minister said on one occasion, whose company makes you afraid to sin. And um, Jay and others who met Pierce and got to know him never forgot him. Um, years later, Jay, Jay had fond recollections of him 50 years after his death. And uh, he made a deep, deep impression upon people. Um, when Fuller wrote his memoirs, he emphasized, of course, you know, our brother um, was not um, perfect in his in his. Uh, life, uh, but the, the the main the main the main areas of uh, of sin that and if I'm not even sure you want to call them sin or failing that he could bring up were uh, Pierce's insistence on staying up late at night studying and reading the scriptures and writing whatever, and the fact that he failed to take care of his body when he fell ill. He kept thinking he could keep preaching, 
and uh, the cold that he had went into uh, into bronchitis and then into TB and eventually killed him. Um, he was he was a man who packed into ten very short years of his pastoral ministry and 40, 50 years uh, of, of, a, of a Christian life and uh, was a remarkable Christian. Hmm. Well, thank you for that biographical sketch. And within the biographical sketch, you mentioned uh, a number of people that he had an impact on. We have previously talked with you about friendship. So we're interested to know perhaps who had an impact on him. Who were some of Samuel Pierce's dearest friends throughout his life and what commendable words did they have to say about him? Yeah, William Carey would be one. Um, there still exists a copy of the Greek New Testament that uh, Pierce sent to Carey. Um, when Carey had gone to India, <clears throat> he mailed this to Carey and somehow it eventually found its way back to England. It's now in the Angus Library. And at the beginning of the, the book, uh, the of a blank page before the title page, um, he has written Mia Kadia Kai Mia Psuke, One Heart and One Soul. And um, probably Carey's closest friend in the 1790s was Pierce. Um, if you read Pierce's correspondence to him, um, it's certainly the most war the, the, the warmest. And it's quite evident that these two men shared a deep, deep bonds of friendship. Um, Andrew Fuller would be another. Uh, Fuller preaches his uh, funeral sermon. Um, Fuller did tell him before his death that he was planning to, to uh, sorry, Fuller wrote his uh, memoirs. Fuller did tell him before his, Pierce's death that he was planning to write the memoirs. And he said, don't be afraid. I, I'm, I'm not going to puff you up as a celebrity. Um, but in many ways he did. I mean, you, you just couldn't otherwise. It, it was very difficult to, to find areas where people found fault with Pierce. Um, when Fuller f heard of his friend's death, he was on a street in Glasgow. He had gone north to raise funds for the missionary society that sent William Carey to India, which he and Pierce had done for many years. And um, Pierce obviously had fallen ill. And somebody uh, who knew Fuller's friendship and had learned of Pierce's death, told Fuller, and uh, Fuller just was overcome with weeping and had to step out of the street into a side alley, uh, lest people, you know, wonder why, why he was not able to control his his emotions. Um, John Ryland Jr., um, because Fuller was in Scotland, Ryland Jr., uh, the younger Ryland, uh, took his funeral sermon. And he, too, talks about, you know, in, in the uh, printed version, how he was having difficulty at the beginning of the sermon uh, controlling his emotions and being able to speak uh, about his brother. And so Pierce, Pierce was able to, he was a man who was able to cultivate uh, these sort of deep friendships. And in fact, um, um, he, in some ways, he was kind of a linchpin of all of these men. Um, their friendships would continue, obviously, after Pierce but they never forgot the impact that Pierce had made upon their lives. In both the biographical sketch, as well as when I took the class with you on Andrew Fuller, we, we spent some time on Samuel Pierce, both reading the memoir that, that, that 
Andrew Fuller wrote of him and also some letters of correspondence between Samuel Pierce and his his wife. Um, and you had mentioned her in the biographical sketch. So what what do we know of Samuel's marriage with his wife, Sarah? And and what are some things that we should learn from him and glean from him as husbands, um, as as it pertains to our wives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, um, we, we have a, a fabulous uh, kind of uh, window into their marriage because um, uh, Pierce wrote at least 75 letters over the course of his life to his wife. Uh, these were usually written when he was away from her, raising money for the Missionary Society or on preaching excursions. Uh, for instance, in the se- mid-1790s, he went for six weeks to Dublin. And he kept a bit of a diary, but he also sent back these letters to to his wife. So they 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 give us a tremendous um, window on uh, his perspective on their marriage. Regretfully, we don't have any of her letters to him, and I'm not sure why that is. She does mention uh, she does mention after his death that uh, and she's corresponding with a man named Joseph Belcher, who was in America who had grown up in Birmingham. He'd grown up in the Sunday school um, at um, uh, in Pierce's church. And he, she mentions that she was not a great correspondent. So it could be the case that she didn't write letters uh, avidly as he did. But um, it's very evident that their relationship was deep and warm and um, Pierce was not afraid of telling how much, telling her regularly how much he loved her. Um, at one point he says, you know, I'm, I'm out in company all the time and have the opportunity to meet um, numbers of women in these churches. But he said, none, none can compare to my Sarah. Um, and he was, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, we have letters he wrote before his engagement, before his, his marriage, when they were engaged. And you think, well, okay, th- those are the sort of letters that young couples always if they do write letters to each other or notes to each other or say things to each other that he would say. And then as they get married, these things start to cool. But in fact, uh, you find the opposite. You find him growing in his admiration for his wife and what she meant to him and how, how much uh, he missed her. One of the critical things I think that um, uh, I've always been impressed with in terms of those letters is the esteem that he has for his wife, the, the way he honors her. Um, many years ago, uh, I had a student who has continued to be a friend, and he was heading for pastoral ministry, and he had married a young woman. Uh, she was about 18 or 19 when I first met her, and I was in my late 20s, and uh, he was in his early 20s. Um, we, My wife and I had them over uh, early on in their marriage, and... Um, you know, <clears throat> looking back, you wished, sometimes you wish you could recall those days and do some things differently because uh, I would notice that my friend, <clears throat> the student, was very gifted theologically and um, he had one of the finest and still does one of the finest theological libraries that somebody who's not a pastor or somebody who's not a vocational ministry has. And... Um, he would often engage in theological discussions with my wife and I, but when his wife tried to make a comment 
it was very evident that he didn't regard anything she said of value. And she was quite striking in terms of her outward appearance, very beautiful. And it was quite evident, it became evident to me that he had married her for her physical appearance. They're Christians, but he had not married her for the inner beauty or her, her mind, but it was, it was her outward appearance. And he, he later, many years later, admitted this to me. He said, you know, I married her because she was quite striking. The last time I saw her, which would be about 20 years, uh, yeah, probably about 20, um, about 20 years ago, uh, she looked like she was still when I first met her. You know, she was 18 or 19. Um, she was one of these people whose physical appearance didn't seem to change over the years. I haven't seen her for about 18 years. Because about 20, 18, 20 years ago, she started an affair with their next door neighbor. Well, actually, no, his, sorry, his best friend, one of his best friends. And um, she divorced him. She left him uh, with three children. And he was absolutely shattered. And he admitted to me at the time that he had, he, had no, he had not esteemed his wife. And I just wish that my wife and I, I remember my wife and I remarking about it, that, you know, he, he didn't seem to esteem her. But we were young, and I didn't feel I could rebuke him. And I should have. I should have said something personally to him. You know, you, 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 you don't treat your wife properly. And um, it, it led to, to, to ruination of his marriage. And um, now he sought to rebuild his life as a Christian, but there was just no way he could ever go into pastoral ministry. Um, the, the, you find the exact opposite in, in Pierce. That's a long, long kind of... Uh, disquisition to just to, to, to compare him to Pierce. Pierce, uh, he, he says at one point, the, mo the, more, the more we have been married, the more, he said, I esteem you as the best of women. And um, it's very evident that he, he honored her and uh, prized her as a person. Uh, you can see that. He talks about theology and all of his concerns in these letters. And um, so there's, I think there's, there's, a, there's a much to learn about, you know, uh, from this Baptist marriage. Hmm. Well, at the beginning, whenever you started talking about when he wrote her letters, you alluded to some of the other responsibilities that he had other than his regular preaching ministry. And that was our next question for you. But perhaps you can uh, take some more time now to uh, further expand upon uh, what other evangelistic responsibilities Pierce had during his life other than the regular preaching of the word to God's people? Yeah, so he would have been involved in uh, pastoral ministry at Cannon Street. He was the senior pastor there for, well, the, the 10 years from 1790, 1789 to 1799. Um, he did have some pastoral help at the end of that ministry as the church had become significantly larger than what he had been accustomed, he had come to, um, but he was also involved in church planting. Uh, this is a period of revival for the Baptists, and they are not only sending people on missions like Gary to India and uh, the West Indies and the west coast of uh, the West Africa, but they're also involved in village preaching, as they called it, going out into small villages where there was no gospel witness, 
there would be an Anglican church usually, but usually the, the it was moralism if it was anything. Um, sometimes these churches were two parts of two or three point charges, and they had no regular minister. And so Baptists would take advantage of this <clears throat> and go out and begin to preach in the villages. They'd seek to find somebody who was open to the gospel, ask him if he would open their home, and then use their home as a base of ministry and operation. And Pierce was involved in this on a regular basis during the week. Um, he would also be, he was also prevailed upon when the Baptist Missionary Society was formed in 1792. Um, he became one of the executive committee. And the, the main work of fundraising fell upon him and Andrew Fuller. And in those days, you know, what, that, what did that mean? Well, it meant, you know, traveling by stagecoach to various parts of England. Um, and uh, this is before macadamization of roads. And so, uh, especially in the springtime, road, travel by road could be very, very uh, bumpy, difficult. Uh, roads would get fl uh, flooded out, uh, huge uh, ruts in the roads left by the winter. Um, etc. And so travel was slow. Um, and so he would be away. He sometimes, and I, I'm sure he must have made arrangements to fill his pulpit, people to fill his pulpit, but he would be away for maybe, you know, a couple of weeks uh, traveling. Um, he called it, uh, he and Fuller called it begging. And Fuller reckoned that uh, if he got a pound every mile he traveled, he was doing well. And uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to think about how how much the numerical value a pound would be for us today. Maybe it's about five hundred dollars, something like that. But um, it was arduous labor. And uh, but these these men did not. They, they they didn't come from the churches that sent Carrie to India and other missionaries out during this period. Were not wealthy churches. They're rural churches, many of them, or they're churches in industrial centers. Um, one of the largest churches, which was a church of over probably upwards of a thousand members, um, they had difficulty meeting their pastor's salary, Benjamin Francis. He'd be, he was there for 30, 35, 40 years. And even at the end of his ministry, they could hardly meet his salary. These, 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 were, these people were very poor, uh, these, these Baptists in this period of time. And um, so uh, that demanded that they had to do a fair amount of travel to raise to raise money and when he would travel he would preach so he would go to a church midweek he'd preach and then he'd go to the door and people would give him money uh for the the missionary society and it, it we were so used to missionary societies today uh, the formation of the baptist missionary society was the first the very first missionary society formed for cross-cultural mission in its wake, there were things like the London Missionary Society, the Methodist Missionary Society, uh, the Church Missionary Society. These are other missionary societies, all formed in the 1790s. But the Baptist Missionary Society was was quite unique. And um, so this is um, these were this was all very demanding upon him, and they really needed somebody full time to do this rather than a, a pastor. But that wouldn't come probably for about 30 years when they finally had a secretary. They did have a secretary. Andrew Fuller was the secretary, but a full-time secretary would eventually uh, take the place of Pearson Fuller in fundraising. So 
throughout um, our conversation thus far, um, it's evident that Samuel Pierce was esteemed as a, a gifted preacher, and, and also he was a man who was concerned for the souls of those who heard him. And with that thought in mind, can you recount the story of Pierce preaching at 5 a.m. and how this sermon evidenced mm-hmm. his concern for his hearers' souls and some applications we can draw from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the incident is one that uh, is rooted in a, a, an ongoing issue through the 18th century. Um, legally, uh, the Baptists were free to establish churches. They had to register them with the state. But there were ongoing periods of, of, of violence, mob violence against Baptists. Um, so one of Fuller and Pierce's friends, James Hinton, was nearly beaten to death in a place called Woodstock. Um, not the Woodstock of New York, <laughs> but Woodstock just outside of Oxford. Um, and uh, around the very same period of time, in the, the early 1790s, uh, Christmas time, uh, a mob burned down a Baptist church in Gillsborough. There were a number of them arsonists that fired the church, burned it to the ground. Uh, the Baptists pressed legal charge, pressed uh, went to court to get um, damages, you know, get payment for these damages, and they did so. They were able to, amazingly, the court found in favor of them, and they were able to um, to get the monies to rebuild, and so they rebuilt. And in 1794, in the summer, it was in the May of 1794, they invited Samuel Pierce and Andrew Fuller to come and preach on the opening of the church. And um, Pierce uh, preached in the morning, Fuller in the evening, one of the men who was there, a young man, he was 18 at the time, 18 or 19, was uh, Francis Augustus Cox, who would later become a kind of really prominent figure in certain circles of Baptist life in Britain. And um, it's owing to him that we have the story. Um, at lunch um, on the Sunday, uh, people would stay for lunch, and a number of them said to Pierce that it was such a good sermon. Would he, would he be willing to stay the night? And preach the following morning, and um, Pierce. Pierce probably realized at Gillsboro. Um, I, I haven't done the, the 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 calculations, but it probably would have taken him the best part of a day to get home. And so he thought, and he he would have stayed for the evening service. So he was probably going to end up staying for the Monday anyway. So he said yes, but he said he insisted it's got to be at five a.m. And he wanted uh, to be able to preach to the to the working class, the working men who would be going out in the fields before they went out. And so they had a service at 5 a.m. 200 people showed up. And um, around 6.30, everybody, the service has been over and everybody's uh, gone. And there are three or four ministers who are there, Pierce, Fuller, Augustus Cox, and one or two others. And... Uh, Fuller said to Pierce, it was a very good sermon, brother, as, as usual, but um, he said your structure of the sermon was really odd. Um, he said, it seemed to me you, you preached the sermon and then you, you did the whole thing all over again. Uh, why did you do that? And Pierce, Pierce's response was simply, well, it was kind of a nonchalant. Well, that was, that's just the way it was. And um, Fuller, Fuller is a, a very different personality from Pierce. Pierce was a very gentle person person in one-to-one in the pulpit he could be like a lion but one-on-one he was very gentle and uh, that that wasn't that wasn't fuller's way at all he was a bit of a bulldog and (laughs) 
once he got his teeth into something, he was going he was going to find out the the, the the reason. And he kept pressing Pierce, and finally Pierce said, "Well, well, sir, if you must know, I I I will tell you." He said about. Five minutes before I was about to conclude the sermon, I, I, I saw the back door open and a, young, a, a man enter from the working class. And you could tell that by clothing. And he said, I could tell by the sweat on his brow and the fact that he'd gotten to the service at the very end, that um, it had taken him quite a while to get there. And uh, he was obviously um, um, uh, distressed that he hadn't been able to get there earlier and for the entire service. And he said, Pierce said, I, 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 I reckoned that uh, here was a man who either loved the gospel and regarded it as a feast, and, or he, he was a man who had never heard the gospel. In either case, he said, his effort demanded one on mine. And so in the, in, despite criticism, because all the, all the pastors will be sitting in the front row with the, with the deacons of the church, you know, and they kind of the deacons bench and, uh, they Pierce would know that they'd be that these these were men who knew how to structure sermons and one of the most difficult groups of people to, to preach to are pastors right yeah, they're they know how to do this this is their this is their craft and and he thought and he's he's, he's still preaching and he's thinking this and he's thinking whatever these men are good I'm going to repeat the whole sermon and capsulize it in about 15 minutes. And he said, in the hopes of doing this man good, I gave him 15 minutes. And Pierce, uh, sorry, uh, Fuller, who had been kind of jovial before this and kind of joking and pressing Pierce for the answer of why he had repeated the sermon, so to speak. Uh, Francis Augusta Sox said it was not, not normal, but Fuller was quiet. Because we all realized that we had seen in action a love for souls. And um, Francis Augustus Cox recounted that story. I've not found it in print before, uh, I think it's the 1830s. So it was nearly 40 years later, he still remembered this. It st stood out in his mind about how we are to love, love men and women. And I, that was a mark of, of Pierce's preaching, which I think has to be emulated. There are times in which, in preaching, in which we have difficult things to say, and uh, sometimes God's, cause, God's people need to be chastised by the word, but it has to always be undergirded by love. And uh, I've been in theological education long enough now to know that congregations, if they know their pastor loves them, They will listen to him. But no matter how learned he might be, if they don't have that, they don't sense he loves them, they're not going to give him their full attention or even, even their full obedience as, as, as they, they need to, as, as God's people being shepherded by their, by their pastor. Um, and love is critical. It's, it, in fact, the more I've, I've studied Fuller, and I you, you see it in his, his in his memoir. He, he, he says of um, the more I've studied Fuller, the more I've seen him as, as a theologian of love. And in fact, at the end of his memoir, when he's summing up Pierce's character, he said the dominant theme of his character was holy love, a love for God, and a love for sinners. He doesn't talk about the love for his wife because his wife at the time was still living, but he could easily have included that. 
Thank you for recounting that story. Um, perhaps briefly, you could recount an- another story uh, as you answer this next question. Um, what can we learn about Samuel Pierce's humble submission to the Baptist Missionary so- Society's decision uh, to not send Pierce to India? Can you tell us a little bit about that and then uh, tell us what we can learn from his humble submission yeah. to this decision? Yeah, Pierce by Carey uh, went to India in 1793. Within a year, Pierce and his wife Sarah are convinced that God is leading them to India as well. And so Pierce uh, makes an application to go to India, and um, which would have meant leaving his church. I'm not sure he told his church at the time, but he did tell Fuller and um, John Ryland Jr., who were other members of the executive council, so to speak. And uh, so they they determined that they would meet with Pierce in 1794, November of 1794, at a, in a, at a church, a Baptist church at a place called Road, R-O-A-D-E, in Northamptonshire. And the month before, Pierce devoted to, to prayer and fasting on a regular basis during the week. Um, these Baptists, prayer and fasting, fasting as an as an accompaniment of prayer was not infrequent in their lives they you find a number of occasions when they would devote a day to prayer and fasting but um pierce devoted a couple of days a week to prayer and fasting with his wife seeking direction reading scripture and he kept a diary which was available to fuller when he wrote his memoirs and um they were by the end of the month they were thoroughly convinced that God was sending them to India. And he wrote to Kerry, he said, we'll be there. We'll see you in a few months. And because it would take six months to take to sail to India from England, because there was no, there's no Suez Canal. So you have to go down the Atlantic, around the Africa, and then into the Indian Ocean. And um, at the meeting, uh, the, there was Ryland and Fuller and two or three other of Pierce's close friends, a man named John Sutcliffe of Olney, where John Newton had been the minister of the Anglican Church, and Sutcliffe was the Baptist minister. And um, they spent two or three hours talking to Pierce, asking him why he felt led and who's going to fill his place if he went, because he was he occupied a very important position in terms of fundraising and supporting the and promoting the mission. And then they asked him to withdraw, and they spent three hours in prayer. And discussion. And Pierce wrote later, he said, I, I, I felt all anxiety leave me and a commitment to the will of God, whatever it might be. At the end of the three hours, so they had spent six hours together, three hours or two or three hours with Pierce, and then two or three hours wrestling with whether or not we should recommend that Pierce go to India, which would mean they'd, they'd have to tell the church and the church would have to find another minister and funds would have to be raised and so on. But at the end, they, they wrote a little note and put it in Pierce's hands that they were impressed deeply by the love that Pierce showed for the lost and the, the purity of that love. And they were quite certain of the giftedness of their brother, but they felt that the importance of the position that he held in Birmingham and the church, that church held in the, in the promotion of the mission that they felt that it would it was in the mission's best interest <clears throat> that Pierce stay uh, in Birmingham and not go to India. Uh, Pierce would later write to his wife that his deepest 
deepest desires were had been dashed, but I ever desire to make my Savior's will my own. One of the first times I ever uh, related that story, I, I remember a, 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 it was a man, it was a principal of a theological college or school, and he's, I remember him raising a question after the, the I was, I was I, I, it was a lecture on Pierce, and I gave that story near the near the end, and he said to me, he said, um, how, how do you know, how did Pierce know he, the, the, the man who encouraged him to stay, and he did stay, were right? If Pierce knew what God wanted him to do, and his wife knew what God wanted him to do, why didn't he just go? And, you know, I didn't have an answer for that. I, I'm not always the quickest on my feet, and I, I, I didn't know what to say at the time. And it was about a year later, I was reading an article by the missiologist Ralph Winter, and I think he was talking about the importance of team, playing on a team, so to speak, in missions. And it suddenly occurred to me that that question, that question says more about the person asking the question than it does about Pierce. In fact, I realized that the question isn't a helpful question because the question's coming from the vantage point of, in that case, it was late 20th century, but not much has changed in the last 25 years, late 20th century North American individualism. If I know the will of God for my life, what do I need to, to ask anybody else to chime in? And uh, God forbid that I should listen to anybody else who tells me differently. And I realized the question was wrong. And in fact, I can, if we had time and if this was the occasion, I could show you texts where Pierce himself says, uh, I, I realized I was the member of a team. And I had a role to play in England. And the success of the mission was not simply on me going, but on all of us pulling together, as it were. And um, I think there's something very important in that. One of the dangers of Baptist life, and in the late 18th century, Baptists were able to overcome it. Um, it had afflicted them in the earlier part of the century, and it would afflict them in the 20th century, big time, um, is, is individualism. Uh, our polity leans in that direction, you know, the autonomy of the local church. And if the autonomy of the local church is, you know, a mainstay of our lives, then the autonomy of the pastor, uh, the autonomy of, of church leaders. And... We have a difficult time. Baptists, I think, have had a difficult time working together. And I think it's, it, that, that has made some Baptists you know, wish that we had bishops. You know, If we had bishops, we could have the bishop tell everybody what to do. <laughs> but I, I, I don't think that's, that's not the answer. But we, 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 we have wrestled with the autonomy of the local church has developed as a, part, a plank, a key plank of our polity, along with the individualism of our culture. And so sometimes the emphasis on autonomy or the emphasis on individualism, I'm not so sure it's as much biblical as it is cultural in our circles. And, but at the end of the 18th century, men like Pierce were able to overcome the negative effects, I think, of kind of excessive autonomy and excessive individualism. And I think he's an example for us in this regard. 
Amen. I I agree. I remember when you first recounted that story in the class that that I took with you on Andrew Fuller, and I I thought the question was odd that was asked to you originally. Um, but then again, as I reflected on what what Samuel Pierce did, it was very commendable to me as as a young man to to see another man go through that. And even I remember when I was being ordained. I was asked what I would do if the ordination council denied it, like they denied my ordination. Yes. Um, and and I replied, well, I guess I wouldn't be ordained. So I guess I, I would just stop doing what I'm doing. And and one guy said, wrong answer. It's like you should keep doing what you're doing anyways. And I'm like, I, I don't really <laughs> agree with that, but but I I hadn't read Pierce yet, so I'm I'm gliding on the shoulders of someone yeah. far wiser than I even at that time. But that that just seemed off putting to me. I was like, is this all a charade? Um me coming here if if I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. Yes, um, exactly. But exactly but with that being said, um we've received much instruction from Samuel Pierce's life and ministry. Do you have any final encouragements? Um, that you would like to give us and our audience concerning the short-lived life of Samuel Pierce? Yes, I, I think uh, the kind of the main characteristic that Andrew Fuller found in his life, the, the holiness, the holy love uh, that um, kind of undergirded his life was uh, so critical. And um, uh, I think that's an ongoing kind of message to us. Um, Sorry, there was a glitch there. Um, yeah, I think uh, the, the the holy love of 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 Pierce's life is something that we, we needs to undergird our ministries, um, and especially in our day, uh, ours is a day that was in some many ways similar to their day. Um, massive changes taking place in society, the Industrial Revolution, um, the American Revolution was just couple of decades passed. I mean, uh, Pierce's earliest memories as a boy would have been the American Revolution. He was 10 when the revolution broke out. Um, and he was in his late teens when it ended. Um, and then the French Revolution, and that plunged England into war. Uh, his entire ministry was one in which England was at war. And the turmoil that those things cause in a society um, he lived in tumultuous days, and yet he uh, days in which it would be very easy to allow anger and bitterness and hatred, particularly hatred for the French, um, which was kind of a, a defining characteristic of being English. I mean, to be English was to hate the French, and I'm sure the, uh, the vice versa. Um, but Pierce is not consumed by any of that. He's what he is consumed by is the kingdom of God and its expansion and the glory of God. And for that, the, the weapons of our warfare were prayer and humility and love. And I, I think Pierce stands. Um, I think for me, Pierce is one of the, the key figures who rescued me from thinking that Baptists didn't have a rich spirituality and didn't have a rich heritage. Um, much of the 
immediate past of Baptist life is either the kind of glitzy stuff we've seen, which um, focuses on numbers and the outward show and um, is not doctrinally grounded, or a bit more distant past, I'm thinking here of the 1920s through the 1940s, the kind of fighting fundamentalists and the, the, the angry, bitter men who we needed in some ways, who kept the faith and handed it down to us, but they're not the best of models. And men like Pierce are just tremendous. Uh, they're, 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 the spirituality is so rich. It, it stands up to any, any it, it compares to the best of any other tradition of Christianity. And uh, that has been very important for me because um, a lot of younger men today are, younger men and women are, are deeply frustrated with, you know, Baptist life. And I think one of the, it's not the only solution, but one of the solutions is we have to show them there is a, we have a rich history. And I, because of men like Pierce, I am not ashamed to be called a Baptist, not ashamed to own that name. And uh, because there were men like Pierce who went before me and they are godly, godly examples of New Testament piety. That is certainly an encouragement and a good word to end on. We have been speaking with Dr. Michael Haken on Samuel Pierce. He has given us a biographical sketch. He has talked a little bit about some of the friendships that Samuel Pierce had, uh, including perhaps his greatest friendship with his wife, Sarah. He talked about some of the evangelistic responsibilities of Samuel Pierce and the Baptist Missionary Society and his labors as a pastor. And he has given us applications that we can draw from Samuel Pierce's life. Dr. Haken, thank you so much for taking the time to record with us. Yeah, thank you. It was a delight. Thank you. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.